four. Wait for the kids to get out. In the meantime, it, it I was um, I was noticing conspicuously, with the exception of like Mark and Carrie, that almost all of our teachers are gone today. I wonder what that's about. And students, is this is there a uh, this finals into the you know year coming up, and they're all stressed out or sick or what is it? You know, I'll, I mean, almost across the board, it's just educators. What's going on? <laughs> you know. Anyways, all right. Let me. Uh, Let me read the text, Romans chapter 4, verse 18, starting in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let me pray. Lord, we do pray as we get into your word that um, your spirit would illumine our minds so that we would understand it rightly. And Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we would love it and that we would live differently as a result of being in it. Lord, I pray that we would learn to have the faith that Abraham had, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that we would know um, with certainty and assurance that you are our God and you have made promises from the beginning that you have kept and you will continue to keep your promises. Help us to trust you in that. Especially, Lord, the promise of the gospel of our salvation in Christ. Help us to trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I don't know if you guys, you guys watch many of these kind of like meet the press interviews or some of the different interviews they do on various figures. And they can be political, some of them, some of them are religious, etc., Several years ago, I watch them all the time, if, if you weren't aware. And several years ago, I was watching one. And a guy had just been elected governor of Minnesota. And I don't know if you guys remember this election. And his name was Jesse Ventura. You guys remember this? The, the WWF wrestler who gets elected governor. And I think everybody was tuning in to watch his interview because it seemed so absurd that anybody would actually elect this man to be governor. He's actually quite articulate. But one of the things that he said that just killed me was he was asked about faith and what he thought about faith. And his statement was that faith is a crutch for the weak-minded. That's what he said. Faith is a crutch for the weak-minded. And I was immediately struck by that. And, and then, as some of you know, I got into elected office here locally, and I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that. But, but w- after I got in, I was on the board one night, and we were having a meeting. It, we, we were having a meeting at the board, and 
one of the board members said, hey, look, faith is for the home and the church. It's not something you bring into public. Flat out said it. It's for the home and the church. We don't bring it into education. We don't bring it into the public because that's not real knowledge like everything else is. Right? So keep that at home. And many people believe this about faith, don't they? They think of faith as kind of like an irrational leap into the dark, right? Just kind of close your eyes and go for it. That you guys, you guys hear faith talked about, right? They argue that faith is the abandonment of reason. You just have to completely abandon reason to believe. It's a kind of therapeutic escape from reality. It's some kind of, um, as one great political figure and sicko called it, an opiate for the masses. You guys know who I'm talking about there? Or as Jesse Ventura called it, it's a crutch for the weak-minded. It's how people think about faith. So why is this idea of faith so popular? Why is it so popular? I, I came up with three primary reasons for it, and these are ones that I'm going to posit, and, and I'm not saying these reasons are biblical, okay? We'll get into the text in a minute and deal with what the Bible says about faith, but um, I think there are three reasons why it's popular. One, this is the first one, and this one is biblical. Men are sinners by nature and have exalted their own reason above God's revelation. By nature, we are sinners and we have exalted our own reason above God's revelation. You can start in Romans 1.18 if you want to see that. Right? For the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. Held it down. To suppress is to exalt yourself above it and to press it down. That's what's happened. And that really has led to the second reason. That sin underlying all of this has led to what I think is the second reason, which is that our culture has become fully persuaded by naturalism. Do you guys know what naturalism is? Naturalism is the idea that only what you can experience with your five senses is true. Okay, scientific method is popular in naturalism, right? Only what you can test in that way is true. Nothing outside of what you can experience in your five senses is true. That's essentially naturalism. Supernaturalism is out. That's a very simplistic definition, but I want to get to the heart of it. Our culture has been fully persuaded by it that only what you can sense, what you can experience is true. Nothing else really is true. None of that's nothing else that you talk about is fact. It's just faith. Right. So faith is here. And facts or truth are over here. And you can experience these and this you just kind of, you know, some therapeutic thing for you. That's essentially where our culture has landed in more scholarly terms. If I wanted to put it in scholarly terms, we've embraced an epistemological naturalism. What's that mean? Epistemological is a theory of of knowledge. We have a theory of knowledge that says that you can only know what you can experience with your five senses. And that's just run rampant through our culture. Theology, you know, the study of God used to be considered a legitimate um, area of knowledge. Did you guys know that? It was called the queen of the sciences, in fact. You know, the word science just means what? 
knowledge. And theology was a form of knowledge. But now it's not considered as such. Now it's just some kind of unreliable and irrational opinion. So we're now told that faith is something for the home and church and that we should keep it out of public discourse. Keep it out of our science, keep it out of our schools, keep it out of our courts, and keep it out of our politics. Now, I'm not going to make here an argument, in case you're worried. I'm not going into the argument of, about how we get into politics and how we ought to interact there. All I'm talking about is the position that we've relegated knowledge to God to in our society. The position we've relegated it to. We've relegated knowledge of God to the position of irrationalism, to unreasonableness, right? To some kind of therapy. We've basically agreed as a culture that it's not real knowledge. It isn't true. It's not real. Therefore, religious speech is always seen as a kind of cute opinion, right? If that's helpful for you, then go ahead, by all means, believe that. A kind of speech you should keep between you, your family, and your church. It's not seen as truth. It's not even possible that it may be in fact. It's kind of like if, if there's theories of knowledge, epistemologies, it's kind of like an epistemological snobbery. Essentially, we're, we're the only ones that are right in the naturalist camp. And you all just have to bow to this. And guess what we've done? We've bowed to it. Somehow the claim that what can be tested and experienced by the five senses is all that's true. By the way, that claim is not even itself testable by the five senses. This argument often gives credence, however, is given credence, I'm sorry, by the manner in which the church reacts to it. So we can sit around and blame the world. Look at what they've oppressed us with, right? Or we can deal with what's happened even in the church. Because frankly, we've in large part bought into this. We've promoted it by the way in which we talk about faith. Our churches often define faith incorrectly. Just do. We deserve at least some of the blame. Frankly, not only have we allowed it to happen, but some Christians have promoted it. It's actually been promoted in some camps. We've allowed the assertion that what we are saying we believe is not true knowledge. We've allowed that to go on. It's not fact. We do this. Here's how we do it. We say this. You know, this is what I believe. But others have beliefs, you know, that work for them. See, this works for me. But you just need to believe whatever works for you. Right? You guys have heard that said, right? Anybody said it? I've said it in the past, frankly. I've promoted that idea. This is true for me, but it's not necessarily true for you. It's either true or it's not true. We do it by saying our faith is not something that ought to inform science or law or politics or education. It ought to stay out of those realms of real knowledge. What we ultimately do is capitulate to the idea that what we know about God is not real, true knowledge. Now, now can you imagine if we allowed this kind of logic to reign in all areas of knowledge? I mean, here's the logic we do with faith, okay? Here we are in the faith world saying, this is true for me, 
But it's okay if you, if it, you have something else that's true for you. If we allowed that, that kind of logic to run into other areas of knowledge, it would be insanity. In fact, there are some that are doing it. They're called the postmodern camp. They're basically saying there are no justifiable beliefs. They've been showing up in what some have called the emerging church, which is essentially that there is nothing that is absolutely true. Faith is just therapy. It's just helpful. There's nothing that you can really attach to and say, this is true for everybody across the board. It's just truth. And there are some that are out there, but I I want you to think about what this would do. Think if you were teaching your kid, you know, two plus two equals four, at least for us, right? Now, I'm not sure if that's really true for other people. You know, really math is just for me a therapeutic way to make sense of the patterns I see in the universe. Well, actually, I'm not even sure that I see patterns in the universe because I'm not sure there really are patterns, but I'm not sure else to talk about what I see in the universe. In fact, I'm not really even certain there is a universe. I mean, this is what we'd be degraded to. On and on we would go, right? The fact is that we cannot operate in that kind of worldview. It's, it's madness. And we all know it. Just we can't be there. There has to be things that are true, don't there? They are true or they're not. What's sad is that everything we know as facts based on the five senses, the things that we say, these are legitimately things that you know, this is truth, this is fact, and these things over here are faith, you know, belief in God, etc. What we know, these things are all what we call in contingent and unnecessary. Do you know what that means? I'm giving you a little minor philosophy lesson here. But contingent and unnecessary means? By contingent, I mean this. They do not exist in and of themselves. They're dependent on something else for their existence. You are contingent. You are dependent on a creator for your existence. By unnecessary, I mean they do not necessarily have to exist. They don't have to be created things in the first place. What's amazing to me and probably demonstrates to me the height of human arrogance is that we say that these things are true, but God who created all these things, we are not sure if he's true. In other words, we can believe in the creation, but to believe in the creator is unreasonable and irrational. It's crazy. It's just therapy for weak minded people. It's like me going to an art show and going, hey, look at this beautiful painting. This painting is definitely here. It's true and it's good and it's beautiful. I wonder what the painter's like. And the guy next to me goes, believing in painters is just for weak-minded people. Right? That's essentially what we've done. To believe in the painter is just irrationalism. It's abandonment of reason. Look, to believe in math or science or the physical universe is reasonable, rational, and factual. But to believe in God is just a blind leap into the dark. That's essentially what we've bought into. Is that what the Bible teaches that faith is? Is faith really a blind leap into the dark? Is it really something that's true for me and not for you? Is it really the abandonment of reason? The fleeing to irrationalism? Or is it based on fact? See, Hebrews 11 doesn't say that. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
hear that word assurance? Doesn't sound like a blind leap, does it? When, when you take a leap, a blind leap, what, what happens? What are, what's happening there? Are you assured that there's going to be anything? Especially a blind leap in the dark? You're not sure if you're going to land on anything, are you? It's not what Hebrews 11 one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trusting in a completely reliable promise and a completely reliable person who makes that promise. So this morning I want to look at it. I want to look at that concept and Abraham's faith specifically and how Abraham's faith was not a blind leap and how our faith is not a blind leap. That's what I want to look at. So let's look first at Abraham's faith. Look at Romans 4, 18 through 22. Look right here, Romans 4, 18 through 22. In hope, he believed against hope, and we'll deal with what that means in a minute, that he, the he here is Abraham, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. See, Paul's arguing that Abraham's faith was in God's promise and in God himself. And I want to say Right at the beginning, when you trust in a reliable promise coming from a reliable person, that is not irrational. That is reasonable. That is exactly what Abraham was doing. He says Abraham's faith, in fact, was hopeful. It was strong. It was unwavering. It was fully convinced. Abraham's faith was not a blind leap into the dark. Because it was a faith and a trustworthy promise. That's the first one to deal with. And then we'll deal with the trustworthy person. It was faith and a trustworthy promise or word. In Romans 4.18, it makes this statement. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told or as it is written, right? So shall your offspring be. Abraham was believing in the promise so shall your offspring be. What's that referring to? Here's the story. Here's Abraham. Abraham is walking through life, right? Struggling with the same things that many of us are struggling with. I'm sure he's wondering, why am I here? Sure he's wondering that. I'm sure he's wondering, what's wrong with the world? And I'm sure he's wondering, how will what's wrong with the world be resolved? And in the midst of this struggle, God comes to him, just like every human being. God comes to Abraham specifically, though, and says something to him. He tells Abraham how this problem, how what's wrong with the world will be resolved. Says to him, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You will have offspring as numerous as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. Now, I'm summarizing Genesis 12 and 15, by the way. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and you and your offspring will inherit the land. 
In fact, Abraham, your own seed will be the Messiah, the Savior, the King. He will resolve the sin that is in the world. He will come and he will live and he will die. If you don't believe that Abraham believed that, you just need to listen to the words of Jesus himself. Jesus in John chapter 8 says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham understood what the promise of God meant. And he understood that it meant through his seed would come the Messiah, whom would be Jesus. And he looked forward to it and he believed in what he did not yet see because it was, he believed it was a reliable promise from a reliable God. And it goes on, he says this, that Messiah will bring salvation to all nations. Abraham understood that. Through him, you and your offspring will inherit an eternal city. Eternal city. Now, this is the part some people struggle with, but all we need to do is look at Hebrews 11. Keep your hand there and turn to Hebrews 11 so we understand what it was that Abraham was looking forward to. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you need... um, Um, To understand some commentary on it, what's wonderful about the New Testament is often provides commentary on the Old Testament, right? We see how um, many of the Old Testament figures thought, and we see exactly how Abraham thought um, and what he was looking forward to in, in Hebrews 11, 8 and following. Look there, 8 and following. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Interestingly, Abraham's promise this land, which we call Israel now. But when he receives that land, when he gets to the promised land, he lives there as a foreigner. Isn't that interesting? I I thought this was the destination. But even when he arrives there, he lives there as a foreigner. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he live there as a foreigner? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, repeating the language that Paul uses in Romans 4, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, Abraham is looking forward to this resolution. The promise God had made him that it would all be resolved. And he looked forward to that. In faith, he trusted God's revelation. God came to him, made this promise, and Abraham trusted it. You know, trusting in God's revelation is probably, uh, if I could think of one thing that's the most polar opposite of what our hearts are inclined to do, it's to trust God's word. I think that's probably the most polar opposite thing I can think of what our hearts are inclined to do. So trust God's word. To trust what God has revealed rather than what we think. Right? Look, look at Romans 1.18. You see the problem show, show up here. 
Romans 1.18, he says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You hear what we did? God revealed himself clearly in nature. And what does the heart of man do? Suppresses it. We suppress it. God reveals himself clearly in the Bible. And what do we do? We suppress it. Same thing. We suppress it. To sin really is to distrust God's revelation and to suppress it. It's to exalt our own brilliance and deny God's truth. We do it all the time, don't we? Look how Paul concludes. He he catalogs out the sin of the Gentiles here in Romans 1. Look how he concludes it in Romans 1.32. He says this. Though they know God's decree. You hear that? They know God's decree. God's word. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's how far gone we are. We not only deny God's word. But we actually approve of other people who do the same thing. Now, some people will say, you know, that's great. But the fact is, faith still has to be a blind leap in the dark because Hebrews clearly said that Abraham didn't receive the promise. Right. Abraham clearly says that Abraham's wife was barren. And he was as good as dead, meaning he was unable to have children. He was unable to produce children, right? And yet he still believed that he would have as many children as there are stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. That's a blind leap into the dark. That's irrational. Why would he think that? Abraham must have just had to close his eyes to the reality he was that he was too old to have children and, and that Sarah was barren. He must have just closed his eyes to that reality and just gone forward believing it. You know, this idea couldn't be further from the truth, frankly. We're not arguing you should close your eyes and not see the reality in front of you. That's the argument we're making. Abraham didn't even close his eyes and not see the reality in front of him. Do you know that? Look what it says in Romans 4.19. Or let's start in 4.18, actually. Abraham didn't fail to see reality. In hope, he believed against hope. What does that mean? To believe against hope. He's using hope differently here, by the way. Paul is. The first one, in hope he believed, is the biblical concept of hope where you have an assurance that what is said is true. He believed against hope is this idea that I'm going to believe... When nothing from the world's point of view seems to justify my belief. In other words, nothing from the world's point of view, nothing he could experience with his five senses seemed to justify his belief. Right? 
but he was going to believe it anyways. That's believing against hope. Paul's not saying that Abraham had some kind of secular optimism. Okay, he didn't have some sort of secular optimism. He wasn't thinking positively, right? I, I, Kevin gave me a gift. Kevin and Isaac did. They, they went, <clears throat> went and bought me a set of CDs of Joel Osteen's new book on tape or on CD, right? Uh, Becoming a Better You, um, which I have a parody of on my website called Becoming a Better Jesus um, on my uh, blog. But if you listen to this book, it's awful. I mean, I'm going to just tell you right now, it's an awful book, right? I've listened through it and I don't want to pick on the guy, but it's some bad theology, horrible. I mean, I, I don't know if I've listened to anything that bad in a long time. And we're just listening to it on the way to the coast. And Joel Osteen is essentially a purveyor of positive thinking of kind of secular humanist optimism, although he'll just throw in God, right? So I'm listening to his CD and, uh, here's one of the things he said. And Kevin and I just died laughing in the car. He says, you know, now this is the kind of irrational sort of thing that we're not saying Abraham participated in. Okay. He, He says, you know, the problem with you and the chapter with title, I think was uh, learn to like yourself, right? Which already is problematic, but learn to like yourself. And he goes off and he says, you know, uh, it's true. You need to learn to think more positively about yourself. You it's true. You may be a bad husband and father. You may not take care of your wife and kids the way you should. And you might yell at them or get angry or do things you really shouldn't do. But you pay the mortgage on time every month, don't you? Just think positively about that. What is that supposed to mean? You're an awful husband and father, but think positively that you're a good husband and father because you pay the mortgage every time on, my, you know, on time every month. In other words, the argument was, close your eyes to the reality that's in front of you and believe something that isn't true. That's essentially what he's arguing. Just close them, believe something that's not true. Just tell yourself, be optimistic. Eventually, you can think it into reality. That's essentially what he's arguing. That isn't biblical faith. Biblical faith is not closing your eyes to reality. It's understanding very clearly that what you're believing in is difficult to believe because you can't experience it all the time. You can't always see it. And so it's difficult to believe, but not irrational to believe, not unreasonable to believe. And it's not just blindness that you're going through to believe it. Abraham wasn't blind. Not only did he believe against hope, he considered his own body. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. In other words, Abraham was going, now, wait a minute, God. You're telling me I have to believe you, even though, look what it says, which was as good as dead since he's about 100 years old. He doesn't mean he's about to physically die. He can't produce children. And look at, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Sarah's been barren. Now, at this time, Abraham's going, no, wait, let me get this straight. I'm 100 years old. Unable to produce offspring. My wife is 90 years old and she's been barren for 90 years. She's past the age of childbearing. 
And I'm supposed to believe that we're going to have a children, or children, that I'm going to produce a child through Sarah. And God says, yes, you're supposed to believe that. And Abraham struggled with it. He fully considered it. He looked at the stark reality in front of him. He wasn't irrational and just go, well, I'm just going to believe it and hopefully it'll happen. Right? He considered it. He struggled through it. And he appealed to what? Why did he not waver in his faith? Because he believed in the God who made that promise. He didn't believe in his ability to somehow drum up enough faith to make it happen. He believed in God. See, faith has an object, doesn't it? God is faith's object. That's why, you know, right off the bat, I just reject the whole idea of an interfaith alliance. What does it even mean? Faith in what? In faith? No, faith in God. Abraham believed God. Do you guys understand that? While the course of his life was certainly one that was faithful and unwavering God's promise, it doesn't mean he never doubted or sinned. Abraham struggled with the promise. He did. And you know what he did? He had sex with Hagar, his handmaid. Because he struggled with it. They had Ishmael. He struggled with the promise even beyond that and laughs when God reaffirms the promise. God comes and reaffirms it and he laughs. Yeah, right, whatever. And he's struggling with it. How could this be? Abraham certainly faced the reality and he thought it through. You know, this happens to us when we consider Scripture, doesn't it? Um, I, I think about Scripture like stories in the rest of Scripture where this occurs. The guy who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know what? My son is demon-possessed, and I need your help. And Jesus says, well, if you believe, all things are possible, right? And uh, the guy says, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, he was considering the reality and struggling with it. He's saying, I don't see through my five senses how this could be true. But I know you're God and I believe, so help my unbelief. Peter, when he walked on water, what's he do? He's walking on the water, he's out there. Considers the storm, doesn't he? Around him and the waves and the impossibility of walking on water <laughs> and loses faith and falls in. Jesus gets in the boat. What does Jesus say to him? You have little faith. It happens, guys. We struggle with believing this just as Abraham did. As Christians, our belief is not that you should irrationally believe whatever you're told by anybody and just close your eyes and jump out blindly into the dark. As Christians, we're telling you, believe a certain promise that's right here in this revelation and believe it because that certain promise comes from a trustworthy person or God. Look at what it says here. This is why Abraham was able to have the faith he did because of who the God was behind the promise. Look at verse 20. 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Isn't that interesting? He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. It goes on in verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. It's neither irrational nor unreasonable to trust the creator of the universe. If I have cancer and one of my buddies who's not a doctor, let's say Jason, comes to me and says, you know what? I can cure your cancer. Now, you know, I may think Jason's a great guy, but I'm not going to trust him, am I? Because I don't really think he's able to do it, do I? It would be irrational. What experience do you have curing cancer? None. I just think I can. Okay. Now, that would just be stupidity, wouldn't it? But however, if I have cancer and I go to a doctor who's a specialist in dealing with the kind of cancer I have, and he has a record of curing cancer at the stage I'm in, the kind of cancer I have, where he does it over and over and over again, he cures it. And that doctor tells me, I can and I will cure this cancer. We've done it many times before. We're going to do it again. It's rational for me to trust him, isn't it? That's reasonable. Because he's a man who's done it before. He's able to fulfill the promise he's making. Does that make sense? When we go to the word of God and we say, you know what? We trust the word of God. People can say that's irrational and unreasonable, but they're only saying that because they don't know the God who wrote it. Ultimately, do they? They don't know the God who gave this to us. And so they think it's unreasonable. But if you know the God who gave this to us, you know that there's nothing unreasonable about listening to him. There's nothing unreasonable about trusting the creator of the universe. And see, that's what Abraham understood. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. God strengthened Abraham's faith. That grew strong in his faith is in the passive. God was strengthening Abraham's faith as he glorified God. This is the opposite of what we do when we don't trust in this and that falls short of the glory of God, right? It's the opposite of what we do when we exchange the glory of God for birds and animals and reptiles. Abraham believed and trusted God as he revealed himself to be. He believed God was true and gracious and just and loving and merciful and glorious and majestic and beautiful. He believed God was holy and all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present. He knew that God was faithful. It was because Abraham knew the God in whom he believed that he was able to trust God's promise when the fulfillment seemed impossible. Look at 421. Fully convinced he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Why? Because look up at 417, the few verses before this. How did he know God was able to do what he promised? As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Here's the God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, Abraham's faith was in the God who creates ex nihilo or out of nothing. If he can create create out of nothing, if he can give life to the dead, then he can certainly open my wife's womb and make me able to have a child. That's a small miracle. That's nothing. There's nothing unreasonable about believing that. If you believe God created this entire universe and everything in it, and he created this entire planet that we're on and everything on it, what big deal is it for God to make a woman who's barren able to bear children? Really isn't, is it? Nothing unreasonable about that. It's completely rational. If this is the God making the promise, then it's no stretch of credulity or reason or rationality to say that God could do this. But Paul doesn't finish his argument with the example of Abraham's faith. You know that? He doesn't finish there. Because see, the whole point of chapter 4 is that Paul is using Abraham as an example or as biblical evidence for the argument that he made in chapter 3. In other words, in chapter 3, Paul made the argument that justification comes by faith alone. And in chapter 4, he's using Abraham as the biblical example of that or evidence for that. Abraham has been his example of someone who's justified by faith alone. And through Abraham, Paul shows us both the fact that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works or ceremony or law. And he shows us the fabric of the faith that was Abraham's or the nature of saving faith. However, Paul doesn't stop there. You know what else he wants to do? He wants to deal with you and he wants to deal with me. He doesn't just finish with Abraham's example. Paul goes right into application. I don't even have to come up with application for the sermon. Paul, Paul already wrote it right in the text. Look what he says. Verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our transgressions. First thing Paul tells us is that God did not write scripture just to tell us about things he did in the past. That wasn't it. He's not writing just a history book. That'd be interesting to read. And wow, that's 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 cool. I'm, that's interesting that happened. He superintended the writing of the Bible through godly men for our benefit. We learn about stories in the peop- of people in the Bible as examples for us to follow. Scriptures for our benefit. It's God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, you guys familiar with this? And it's sufficient or useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture tells us who our God is. Tells us how he has worked. Tells us what he promises to us and how we're to respond to it. Tells us all those things. I don't know if you, I can think of a more, in fact, I know. I can't think of a more important set of truths to attend to than what's written in the Bible. Yet, um, 
How many of us strive to be great in our professions and not to become men of the word? Or uh, parents, how many of us strive to see that our children are well-educated in school, but we don't train them in the word of God with equal vigor? The book's written for our benefit. And so probably the ultimate unreasonable and irrational act of man is to ignore it. What we so often do, we're those who so often distrust God, aren't we? You guys, I distrust God all the time. Like sometimes I don't feel even capable to trust him unwaveringly like I'm supposed to. We're promised that the word will feed our soul. And yet we ebb and flow in our trust of that and don't get into it much. We're promised that if we seek God and his righteousness, all the other things in life will be added to us. So we don't need to be anxious. And yet how many of us struggle with anxiousness? And seek after making sure everything's shored up. Here's how I do it. Um, I do it just before church. I struggle with not seeking God and his righteousness right before the church service begins because I scurry around here stressing out about whether or not I've taken care of everything before I can actually start to pray and prepare to preach. Right? I mean, I just, I don't want to just rest in God. I get all anxious and worked up and I try to take care of that. You guys know what happens when you have a problem in life, right? Something goes wrong in life. If you're like me, your default mode is not to pray and to trust God. Your default mode is to immediately tear into resolution. How can I fix this? And you think of everything you can do to fix it, right? We're promised that if we give generously and cheerfully, God will provide for our needs. Yet we generally neither give generously nor cheerfully. Now, I didn't say God will make you rich. You heard that, right? He will provide for your needs. We're promised that Jesus will return and bring vindication against those who sinned against us. So we don't need to bring vindication against them. We don't need to bring vengeance because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And yet we don't really always believe that, do we? And so we seek it ourselves, huh? We're promised uh, that God is always working for our good and his glory, even, and may I say, especially in the midst of trials. Especially in the midst of trials. And yet we struggle with having a settled trust in the midst of trials, don't we? Why is this happening? In other words, we fail to be those who are able to glorify God through our continual faith. Oftentimes, don't we? It ebbs and flows. So for failures, what hope do we have? How many of you guys fail? Not to raise your hand. What hope do you have? I know it's 100% of you. Right? I do too. Then what hope do we have? The gospel. Paul wants us to know that like Abraham, we need to believe the gospel. So what's the gospel? Look at verse 24 and 25. He lays it out. But for ours also, 
it will be counted to us who believe in him. What will be counted to us? Righteousness. Will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The gospel is that God counts his righteousness to those who believe in him. The gospel is that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The gospel is not that God looks at your works or religious devotion or law keeping and says your good outweighs your bad. So well done. Come and enter your rest. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that God saw you could keep the law, couldn't keep the law or do enough good works or be religiously devoted enough. So he said, you know what? I'm going to give you an easier, easier way. I'll create a new law. The new law is just believe in Jesus. And if you can muster up enough faith, then I'll honor your faith. God does not honor our faith. He honors the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God created you and that you sinned and fell under his just judgment and wrath. Yet he loved you so deeply. See this? He loved you so deeply that he wanted to provide for your salvation. The gospel is that God sent his son to live the perfect life we failed to. God sent Jesus to be the perfect law keeper we are not. To be the perfectly devout religious man we fail to be. To do the good works we are incapable of doing. To be faithful when we've not been. So that if you believe in him, his perfect life is credited to you. The gospel is that God delivered up his son to death to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 25. Look what he says. So interesting. Raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, speaking about Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. What does that mean? It's the same word, you know, that's used in Romans chapter one, when it says they sinned or they rejected the knowledge of God. So he gave them up. Or he gave them over to their sins. Same word. Delivered him up. God gave Jesus up. He delivered him up for crucifixion. Someone might say, wasn't it men who perpetrated the killing of Jesus? Yes, it was. But let us be perfectly clear. It was God who planned it. Hear that? Well, wasn't the killing of Jesus the greatest sin that ever happened on the face of the earth? Yes, it was. And God planned it. Did God perpetrate the crime? No, but God planned it. God demonstrated his own love for us. Romans 5, 8 in this. That while we are sinners, Christ died for us. For God, look, I'm just affirming John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, right? He gave him, he sent him. 
Jesus, Acts chapter 2 says, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and was put to death at the hands of ungodly men. The whole course of scripture from beginning to end is that God promised to save us from our sins from the time Adam and Eve fell. He promised to do it and he was going to send the Messiah to do it. And he did it. It isn't a story of how we went looking for God. It's a story of how he came looking for us. And that is glorious. That is why we do evangelism. Because God has called us to be his ambassadors, to go out looking for people on his behalf. He's the one looking. Here's Paul's point. The gospel is that you do nothing. You do nothing but receive the free gift of grace in Christ. That's it. By faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, you're justified. Through faith in the gospel, you're forgiven for your sins and declared righteous. That's the ultimate good news, isn't it? We're saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we've done nothing to contribute to it. Just receive it. He's done everything. All we do is receive, and this isn't even active, this is passive, is receive the blessings of the promise that God made to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ by trusting the God who both made that promise and fulfilled it. We're not taking a blind leap into the dark. We're trusting the God who made a promise to Abraham in history, in history, that he then kept in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. We're trusting him, not taking a blind leap. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you um, that you um, chose to reveal yourself to us. You chose to create us. And Lord, as we fell, you revealed yourself to us. And Lord, you made a promise to us that you would save us through your son. And Lord, you kept it. And we're thankful for that. Lord, we believe, we pray that you would help our unbelief. Lord, that you um, would help us as we look into the stark reality that's in front of us the often times uh, things that we look at that cause us to doubt or cause us to struggle with belief. Lord, we pray that as we look at those that you would help us to remember that in spite of how it may look impossible, nothing is too hard for you. With you, nothing is impossible. That you are the creator of all things and you certainly can overcome the little obstacles that we see as so big oftentimes. Lord, I pray that we would trust your son. And we would trust your promise. 
um, and your fulfillment of that promise. And Lord, that we would declare it to the ends of the earth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come up. If you